spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 272 for September 6th, 2023. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about what phase or class 1, 2, and 3 means in cultural resources management. So bust out your textbooks because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Heather... Good morning. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I'm not gonna. Hello. I'm not gonna say California because you're all in California. I, no, forgot I, know, I, I was gonna mention that. Cal- yeah. That was what I was waiting for in California. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Chris. <laughs> all right, and then we've got Bill, also in California, if that yep. helps. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> and then Andrew with our topic today, also in California. I'm the only one that's not. That's right. One of Where us does you, not Chris? belong today. Uh, how's it going, everybody? Cu- good, good. I am currently in, uh, I heard Heather ask, I'm currently in northern Washington State, actually northwestern, Ooh. up in the north, right outside North Cascades National Park. So it's a pretty wow. cool area. We're, we're under the smoke veil of Canada right now. So, you wow. know, can't really see anything. But yeah, yeah. still. Anyway. Are you near uh, Mount Baker? We're just south of Mount Baker. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. Yep. Beautiful. So, yeah, it's a cool area. All right. Well, Andrew's got the topic today. Andrew, what are we what are we doing here? All right, here we go. So today I'd really like to discuss what we think of as a phase one, a phase two, and a phase three in CRM archaeology. And I picked this topic for a few reasons. First, um, I was talking to Chris the other day, and Chris just brought this one up. Hey, why don't we do phase one, two, three? And at the same time, as is so often with topics like this, I had also recently asked my students to define a phase one and a phase two. And some of their descriptions weren't exactly what I was expecting. And then I took a step back and I was like, wait, that's not wrong, though. And so I wanted to talk about this because different places, different archaeology crews, you know, they define where the shift between phase one and phase two or what specifically is in these different phases is it's defined all over the place. So I thought we could talk about our experiences of these three phases, what we think it is, and see if we can come to some sort of agreement on how we think it should be done. Okay, Chris, I already see you have something to say. What's up? Well, just before we even talk about what one, two, and three means, uh, we need to talk about the terminology, right? Because some people, especially in the West Coast, might be thinking, what do you mean phase? Because a lot of times it's called class, right? Class two, class three. I know that the BLM in Nevada calls them class three, like inventories or something like that, cultural resources Mm -hmm. inventory when you're doing a, a pedestrian survey. So class, phase, somewhat interchangeable, and it just depends on where you're at, to be honest. 
That's cool. In in my experience, it, it's always been phase. But, you know, my experience is what, you know, seven different firms or something all in <laughs> Southern <laughs> California ish, you know, so um, yeah. the, I, it's and always, then, then you get Tom yeah. King, who doesn't like any of the numbers and I, no. which actually I agree with him. The more that I've been working, you know, the, the more that I've been involved in CRM and the more I actually agree with him, because I think that having an understanding and labeling each one of these efforts by what they actually are would be more helpful than having these different definite, mm. you know, the, the phase one or a class one, two, three. But you still need to work within the agencies that are overseeing the work that you're doing. So you still have to have that terminology, obviously. But I think it's really important that people understand what the chronology or what are the steps towards, you know, doing what you're doing out in the field and why? Why do they happen in this order? Because no matter what they're called, they all typically happen in the same order Mm -hmm. and for the same reason. So, mm-hmm. yeah, good point. In terms of of looking into this and how we define it, you know, I realized I'm like, hey, maybe I should look at my own textbook that I give my students. Maybe that would be good. <laughs> and so, I do recommend. I've been using this one for years. Uh, Cultural Resources Archaeology by yeah. uh, Newman, Stanford, and now Harry. This is the second edition. I believe this is the most current one. I yeah. really like this textbook for a like a field class that is CRM angled, you know, Mm -hmm. because it takes that CRM bent and it spends a bit more time on the laws and that kind of stuff than it does on this is how to hold a shovel. Because I I find (laughs) that the this is how to hold the shovel or this is how to like measure a meter. We can all do that. We can all learn it pretty easy, you know, but the more like what are the laws around this uh, is, Mm -hmm. is the difficult part. This book, chapter four, is just called The Phase One Process. So I I looked through it and I'm like, okay, so what do they say a phase one is? So we'll see if our experiences go with this. (laughs) They say that a phase one, let me see, it refers to the identification of archaeological resources through reconnaissance and intensive survey mentioned in the Secretary of Interior's standards for identification. So even already... As with so much of the law, it's it tells you what it is, but there's so much possibility for interpretation. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. and how like, do you do that? Right. Like, like that's what you do. That's what it's for, but how do you do that? <laughs> yeah. Is that digging? Is that no digging? Is that just looking at a map? You know, so what I think we'll find is as we go through this that we're all sort of right, that you you can't do this wrong as long as you have some sort of plan and it kind of moves forward in a thoughtful manner. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if we'll all argue about, Oh no, you can never dig in a phase one. It's like, well, you you definitely (laughs) dig in a phase one. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Can dig in a, in fact, it's necessary sometimes. Yep. But I've heard people be very much like, Nope, that's where you're just doing a record search. Phase one is record search, you know? So, Looks like yeah, it's not. Yeah, that. see, that's and yeah, Chris, you were going to say something. Yeah, I mean, when I worked on the East Coast, which is where I got most of my experience to start before we moved west, 
it was a, a phase one was a basically, uh, you know, your standard shovel test survey, right? 30 meter interval uh-huh. or 20 meter interval, whatever the standard was for the state. You know, you, so you did the standard shovel test interval. And then phase two was typically you go back to the hits, right? So like you'd already done some slightly more detailed testing. Obviously, when you find a shovel te- uh, positive shovel test, you do the cruciform thing where you go in between those and you just kind of nail that down and you figure out where this thing is. And then you go back on a phase two to those spots and you do more intensive shovel testing and or one by ones on certain places, like around certain uh, shovel tests that you dug or maybe even backhoe trenching, depending on, you know, what you've got available and what's going on. And then phase three was always full scale block excavation. Right. And that was always pretty much everywhere on the East Coast that I worked. Those were the rough yeah. definitions that were used. And then I come out here to the West and a, and a class three cultural resources inventory is pedestrian survey. You know what I mean? Like at least for BLM Nevada. Yep. And I'm like, well, that doesn't yeah. match up at all. <laughs> so, right. <you> know. <laughs> yeah. I think for, for me, when I'm trying to teach people that come in entry level and we're trying to explain to them because it is just their heads are spinning <laughs> no matter yeah. uh, you know no matter where they come from especially in some institutions where they're not taught about CRM at all yeah. but what I try to explain is number one a phase one if you want to use that phase one two three but the steps are first absence or presence we're looking for absence or presence. Yeah of archaeological resources, period. Two, we found something. Now we need to evaluate it and determine whether or not it's significant. And so those two steps are your investigation, your assessment, whatever it is that you want to think, you want to call it, that gets you through whatever document that you are informing, whether it's a federal, state, or a local document. In California, that's CEQA or NEPA, if it's a federal project, that's what's informing and telling the agency whether or not you have an impact, adverse effect on a resource or not, period. The last step is data recovery. And that's where if you can't avoid it, you're trying to collect all the information in order to at least retain the data potential so that we don't lose everything if a site is unavoidable, feasibly unavoidable, Mm. or sorry, (laughs) unavoidable, right? (laughs) You cannot feasibly avoid. Um, But that's mitigation. And that's what people sometimes don't understand. So that's what happens after you've already made the determination of impact or effect. And that's, yeah, that's mitigation. It's completely separate. And trying to explain that to people that are new to it, 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 it can be hard. But to me, just it's either the first step is absence presence no matter whether you're doing a record search or you're doing the survey or you're doing shovel test pits and then the second one is we have something what is it and is it significant and if it's significant why is that important it's important because if you have a significant resource it's considered a historical resource and now you have to by law avoid it if yeah, you okay, can but- uh, I know yeah. Bill has something to say too, but it, so yeah. what you've yeah. just explained though, Heather, th- is that that's still phase one though, right? That's the no. hard part, I think. So, yeah. yeah. So We're, phase no. one, phase one is that absence presence. Phase yeah. two is your evaluation. That's your, I have a site. I need to evaluate it. I need to determine whether or not it's significant. That is, if you're going to use the phases, that's your phase two. 
Sometimes you need to dig in order to determine if you have, number one, do you have a site? And number two, if you have a site, what's your extent? What's the vertical and horizontal extent of that site? That's phase one. I think we, okay. So that's, see, that's the part, like, that's the part I want to make sure that, you know, everyone understands as we talk about, like, where would we break? Like, that's a bit, okay. Well, now we're in a phase They mush two. together. They mush yeah. together. Sometimes you can yeah. do an extended phase one, as we call it here, you can do an extended phase one and you get enough information during that digging to yeah. determine whether or not you have a significant resource and you don't even need to do a phase two. So mm-hmm. right. I'll be quiet. <laughs> No, 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 that was, yeah, that was Yeah, you know, the, so the, and like over to the side, I've been looking up what every state that I've worked in calls a phase one and shocker, half of them don't even ever spell it out. And then the other half don't ever tell you the steps of what specifically you do, right? So there's all these things from the, the, you know, Department of Ar- Office of Archaeology, the Department of Archaeology and Historic Preservation, right, or the S- State Historic Preservation Office, the Arizona State Museum, none of them is like, you know, step one, folks get in car, drive to project area, yeah. step two, start walking <laughs> in a line next to each other, like, they never, they never actually say that, right? So, so right. it sounds like there is an unlimited amount of ways to do this right and wrong, right, with zero guidance. None of yeah. these states are really actually explaining what it is, but Heather's exactly right that that there is a whole process of going out to look for sites, but the other half of it is the client, right? Because you need to know where in the world this is even happening. Like, what is the area of potential effect, which is a bounded geographic region that they plan on doing the undertaking? Like, that's the reason why they even need any compliance. So if you don't have a APE, then who really cares? And then just like Heather was saying, the the vertical extent too matters because as Chris was mentioning in the Southeast, those some of those soils are a bit shallow and you can dig a 30 to 40 centimeter shovel probe and you're good to go. Right. In Washington State, depending on where you're at, you might go 130 beyond the, the length of your shovel and then yeah. you have to start augering down, right? So why would you even do that if that's just a bike trail? You know, that's going to be way below where they ever would even be digging. But if they're putting in a parking garage, you may never even be able to get to, you know, I worked on a project that was like multi-years long in in downtown Seattle. The town burned and then they just bulldozed it all into Puget Sound. So there's Mm. a city there at a certain depth. And, you know, the cultural layer is who knows how thick of buildings from like 1883 that were just poured into the ocean. So what, like, where's your APE? You're going, they were digging a tunnel for a freeway way below and through and into that layer. Otherwise, like if you were just going to fix the, the, the sewer pipe, it didn't matter. Cause after they did that whole shoveling the city into the bay, they also hydraulically rinsed down hills. So there's feet and feet of sediment. That's like, you know, unconsolidated glacial fill, till and all kinds of other stuff, soils that were all rinsed down on top of that city. So unless they're going like 60 feet deep, who cares about that old Seattle? Because you're never even going to get to it. So your vertical APE, you're you're above the cultural layer anyway. Mm -hmm. That's not really a part of what you would need to have considered. Right. So then the other piece, too, is, you know, the the records check and, and sometimes they're companies are like, you know, hey, Bill, just get out there and start walking in the desert. And, you know, when you find a thing, start marking it down and don't worry, we'll get the records checked to you. No, the, the first <laughs> half should be once you have an APE. What has anyone ever done there? 
what kind of sites would you ever find? Because, you know, if you're, if your idea, like Chris was saying, of digging shovel probes every 30 or 40 meters, but all the sites that have ever been found in that area are these really small, you know, lithic concentrations or ceramics and lithics together. And they're usually like three or four meters apart. You're going to miss probably every single site that's ever been found in that county if they're all just lithic scatters, right? So you might need to have a different kind of strategy of maybe your transects are closer or, you know, maybe you do them diagonal and stagger them, right? There's all these documents on how you can do a shovel probe survey to maximize, you know, coverage. But at the end of the day, if you don't know where in the world that's happening and what anyone else has ever done in that area, then it's difficult to design the kind of survey that you would to go out there and, and you know, ground truth that things exist in the APE. Yeah. All right. Well, definitely got some stuff to say on that. But first, Bill, you were on the, was that the Alaska Way Viaduct Project? Yeah. Yes. Nice. Nice. Yeah. That big machine is still yeah. buried under there from what I hear. They can't get it out. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it joins the, the crowd of like entire town, you know, cities yeah. and stuff. What's crazy about that whole thing is we had a great geomorphologist, Charles Hodges. This guy knew, I, I don't even really know what to say. I've, I've seen him encourage us to dig deeper and found like paleosols and other places that are at depths yeah. that should have been glacial till the guy's just really good at reading soils mm. and and from the maps of where they were going he said yeah on this area they pushed an entire town in there so you shouldn't do a you shouldn't take a coring machine through it and so they were saying <laughs> oh well that's 1800s you know what would they possibly have steel right like steel is a key piece and that's exactly what that thing hit sure. a building that had iron steel and it ran into it and got all tangled up and they never could get it out. Not only that, but they modeled the whole thing after the big dig in Boston, which was the you know, mm-hmm. most expensive fiasco of tunneling ever. <laughs> and when I lived in Seattle, I voted against that three times and they still did it. The most expensive option. I voted against it three times and they still did it anyway. And then I voted for legalizing cannabis and then they didn't do that until after I moved away. So (laughs) don't vote, don't vote the way I want. If you want change, vote the opposite of me. (laughs) All right. Well with that, I think we'll take a break and come back on the other side and keep talking about this back in a minute. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 272. And we're talking about the phase class system. And I don't mean field tech, crew chief, 
or project manager <laughs> as a class system, <laughs> although that's definitely a class system within archaeology. Oh, that could but be what, like a whole article. Or, or <laughs> Star Trek planet classes. We're not talking about Star yeah. Trek either. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, so what is a class but, three planet? I don't know. Well, I mean, I mean, I could actually tell you that, but I won't. Let's not get into that yet. So anyway, so you were the, uh, for a second there, Chris. Uh, I, yeah, I know. Well, Class I will M. tell you, they, they didn't make that up. Like, like they, um, that, that came from, from actual, like mm-hmm. astro, uh, what is it? Astro, uh, astrophysics or astrobiology, whichever we need to talk about. But anyway, so mm-hmm. I, I did want to mention something was we were talking about all this on the last one. I wrote down a little note here, you know, really, why do we care about all this? Right. And it depends on who you are. Right. Because if you are Heather and you're writing proposals and you're looking at, things that are coming out from agencies and and saying, okay, so they want a a class three inventory or they want a a phase two or they want something like that. Well, they're first off, they're gonna define it, but it also helps when you're just looking at the blurb and you're trying to figure out what you're gonna bid on. You you understand what what you're looking at, hopefully, by just reading it, right? And understanding what that means. So so that's one audience for those is that's why you need to know that. But as a you know, a, t- a field technician or crew chief or somebody who's traveling around looking for work and you're looking on shovel bums, you're looking on arc field work, you're looking on Facebook for that matter. There's a lot of job postings coming out there. Mm-hmm. It helps to just know what you're getting into, right? Like if you don't have the gear to do a full block excavation or you're just like not interested oh, yeah. in it and you'd rather go hike in the desert and do survey, you, you really need to know what these terms mean, right? And, and that's the other thing too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've excavated in the in the high desert in Nevada. It can be fun. It can be real crappy. Like, do you want to swing a pickaxe the whole time or do you want to go on a hike? Right. That's really what the question uh, is. Uh, and, and if you know what you're reading there, just in case the job posting was not very well written, they don't say exactly what you're going to do. But they maybe they say we're going to do a class three or we're going to do a, something like that. And they expect you to know what that means. Then this is a, a helpful right. conversation to have. So, yeah, Heather. Yeah. I, I think I love this conversation. I think, I mean, you could go, <laughs> we could go episodes and episodes on this, but I think it's so, it's so important at every level or, you know, for everybody, for each step of your career, I'd say for me as a project manager, I have been able to advocate for my clients multiple times because I look at it from the spirit of why we're doing what we're doing. So for instance, we had a project where we had done an extensive extended phase one, which is, and we had done, it was backhoe trenches. We had done like, Hmm. I think 120 backhoe trenches on a few acres. It it was, and it was not, I did not want to do that many, but it was (laughs) insistent through tribal consultation. They wanted this. Sometimes you have to realize that, you know, you have to consider what are you doing that's going to impact the site, obviously, more than what you're getting out of it. Like if you're going yeah. and digging the heck out of a site, like you're impacting it before we even get to the point where we're trying to consider how do we preserve it, right? Mm-hmm. So that can be dangerous. But anyway, I had, for instance, I had one project where we had done, you know, about 120 backhoe trenches and then the agency's peer reviewer was insisting that we also do a phase two. We had, <laughs> okay, so we have a site. We have a site. We know we're in a site. We actually knew wow. we were in a site. We were, what we were trying to determine yeah. was what was the, the depth of disturbance at the site. We had 
clearly gotten every every bit of information we needed to not only determine. So you're looking at a site trying to figure out, is the site significant? It's not just about, oh, the whole site's significant. You avoid the whole site. That's not how it goes. (laughs) You're looking at what areas within the site contribute to the significance of the site, right? So there are some areas you may not have to avoid, and there are other areas that you will need to avoid. But this reviewer who loves to sit on the fact that he has a PhD, but he doesn't know anything. Um, what anyway, are you trying to say? He- <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, he better not have gone to my school. Yeah. <laughs> and he was insisting that our clients spend another yeah. $100,000 or whatever on a phase yeah. two when, okay, listen, we've already found what we, have fe- what we need to find in order to determine yeah. significance uh, and con- contribution of significance. And, and more digging is just going to impact your site further. At least in the areas that were contributing to significance. So being able to understand. Yeah. I think I can save you, Heather. I think I can save us all with the textbook. The definition of phase (laughs) two, man. Watch this. The purpose of phase two testing and evaluation is to see whether archaeological sites identified during the phase one survey satisfy criteria for listing on the National Register of Historic Places. Yes. For a site to be eligible, it must have both significance and integrity. So that's yes. what you, you could even show them. You could show them the textbook and be like, we did it. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I won that argument. I was able to, took a lot of work. And the reason yeah. is because when people start saying phase one, two, and three, and when you do this, and this is what Tom King, Tom King says all the time, it's this concept that before I go to three, I must have two, right? <laughs> right. That yeah. people are not uh, able to yeah. get past the point that sometimes the two is not necessary or the two has already been done through what you did for the phase one. The I was going to mention that. So this was a thing that, especially when you were mobilizing backhoes, that would be a common, like a, a one, two type thing. And mm-hmm. a lot of times this would end up happening. For example, if someone has already done a phase one in 1987 and they said mm-hmm. that there was a farmstead with, you know, uh, lithics as well, right? And then they just never built the subdivision. And so those acres sat there for 40 years and no one ever went there. Well, now the rules are, you know, that survey is old, which is good, especially nowadays when things can change so fast with climate change and stuff on just an acre of land just sitting out there that, you know, it would make your head spin. You could find all kinds of stuff popping up that you didn't find in 1987. And so sometimes I've seen where, they know there's a site there. It's already been proven, but it's just a long time ago. And and so then the client's asking for, well, we have to do a phase one because, you know, we need to see what, where things are at, how things have changed since 1987. But we already know there's a site there and we really want to build here now. So can we just also evaluate it basically at the same time and, and modifications of things, you know, shovel probe surveys plus excavation units could be a possibility if you've got backhoes there could be a thing where you're identifying you know buried surfaces and features and and artifact horizons where then you're going to backhoe off a little area so that then you dig down only a few centimeters and now you have some square units where you can have x amount of one by ones or something like that where it's just built in so the backhoe is still digging trenches moving laterally across the land monitor still watching it but we've got techs and crew chiefs digging actual units at the same time i've seen that happen too 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where does the boundary lie between the one and the two in that case? <laughs> well, and Bill, you're you're kind of reminding me with just, I mean, knowing what you're looking for and and you know, just trying to figure all this out, right? You were mentioning something in the first segment phase one of this podcast, if you will, that uh, <laughs> we were, you know, talking about going out there and, and doing your pedestrian survey or doing shovel testing and not having the records checked done. You know, the records check. Oh, yeah. I just I just had to mention this. That one of the other things the records check does is, well, first off, it's 2023. The chances of you being the first archaeological crew in an area are pretty slim, <laughs> right? Like somebody's probably already done something in that area or near that area close enough. And there could be some, you know, one off cultural, you know, feature or something like that that you're looking for or artifact type or something that you may have never seen before or didn't know was in that area. And your brain and your eyes might just not be attuned to it. And, you know, one specific example I can think of was an excavation we, I was doing uh, with another company in Clear Lake, California, out north of uh, San Francisco, way up there. And the Native American monitor that we had on there, he asked me, can I do a presentation to your crew? Because we've got some stuff out here that, you know, you may not have seen. And I was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Please do. And he was talking about these ear toggles that honestly, I'd never even found them before. But those Whoa. those big those big things that go in the, the big like ear holes and stuff like that, they had all kinds yeah. of different shapes of these. And he brought some in to show. And I mean, to be wow. honest. I, I may not even have been looking for something like that. You know what I mean? I mean, wow. yeah. you see something strange in your screen and you're going to mm-hmm. pull it out. But if you don't know exactly what you're looking for or you don't know what you should be looking for, then it makes it really difficult to just go in blind on a project. Yeah. I mean, you can. That means everything becomes suspect. But if you if you know something's in the area, your brain is just a little more attuned to it. So the record search really yeah. helps out in that respect. Yeah, it's it's sad. I always feel it's sad when I go out and I didn't have the record search done when I left, <laughs> because also a lot of times they'll pull the reports, too. So just like you were saying about someone already did the survey, then you also read their narrative of what they did out there and what they found. And so, I, you know, it it just makes you feel like you don't have everything you need to really be prepared for the job when you have not seen those reports and you have not seen what exists in the area. All right. Well, that's a good spot to take a break. And we will move on to phase three of this podcast on the other side. Back in a minute. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Welcome back to the Sierra Mark podcast, episode 272. We're talking about the phase class system and, you know, we're in phase three now. So maybe, uh, maybe we should talk about that. I don't know. You know, phase three. We're just, we're in recovery. There's no data here. We're just in recovery. It's just in recovery. Phase three. Recovery. Yeah. So, you know, when, again, when I was working on the East Coast, it was it's really interesting because I uh, my very first CRM project was a, a phase three data recovery is what they called it. It was an excavation. And it, coincidentally, like I didn't dig a shovel test my first like two years as a field tech, almost three Whoa. years. I, I got on <laughs> I got on excavations the whole time, like every single project was a phase three yeah. excavation. And that wow. can happen on the East Coast because. 
they don't have the ability to avoid significant resources a lot of time, right? They have to dig it up, yeah. which means full-scale right. block excavation. Over here in the West, mm-hmm. yeah, just move your pipeline 16 miles. Like, who cares, right? But over <laughs> uh, over there, it's just like, you get, right. your Walmart's got to go where the Walmart's got to go. You know what I mean? So right. it's, uh, yeah, yeah it, it was crazy. I didn't even know what, what shovel testing or pedestrian survey was for like my first three years yeah. in archaeology. <laughs> you know what? You know, it's so funny, Chris, your story, your story is my story, too. You're like, I have that same story in the West, but coastal California, same deal. Like I, I was in yeah. the phase twos. Like I did. I did one by ones like forever before I yeah. did what yeah. you're supposed to do. Anyway, right. Bill, you well, say I, something to say? Yeah, I was going to say my first job was in. Well, my first professional job all the time was in Western Washington, where it's like Legend of Zelda using a machete to chop through blackberries, you know, to <laughs> yeah. set up a transect line for people to dig shovel probes. And then when they find stuff, you're like, oh, my God, we've got to do another, you know, four more shovel probes. And I've got to chop them all for this one person to dig four more and also chop a line for all the rest of my people. So mm-hmm. we did a lot of shovel probes. My, my spine is now compressed from shovel probes. I mean, there was there was phase twos, there was threes, but the survey in Western Washington is walking through the forest and digging a hole every you know thirty feet or whatever it says, you know, sixty feet. Mm-hmm. What I had, what I was thinking about talking about in the in the last segment, first of all, was just to talk about the record search. I think, you know, when we deal with clients, I always we even have it in the proposal that the the next step first we have a record search and that next step as far as timing because a lot of clients want timing and they're going to hold you to it. Yeah, our timing does not start until we receive the record search. And unfortunately, in California, mm. for those that don't work in California, you know we're it's there's a gatekeepers on the record searches. It's yeah. not as easy as yeah. just going in and getting you know the records. You have yeah. to contact the information center. Some allow in person searches, some do not, and then yeah. some have this huge backlog. It could take months to yeah. actually get the 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 results back. And so, you know, sometimes we get creative and we'll say, okay, we'll do a survey for you without the record search results first. But if we do find something, we may have to go back out and it will cost you another survey. But, you know, just Mm. to kind of keep things moving, we try to do that. But I think that people, especially those that are currently working that, you know, our, our crew out there that are doing the really important work of, you know, the surveys and the, and the, uh, shovel test pits and the data recoveries. I think it's really important, especially for those that haven't been doing it very long to understand that just what Bill was saying earlier is that there's so much that goes into determining why you do what you do. And, you know, like there's all this back work. It's not just, we have, we, we get the, okay, we get the NTP, the notice to proceed from the client and boom, we go out and survey. Or we no. get the record search and, oh, we had the record search results. Now let's go out to survey. I mean, at least a good assessment, a good study does not do that. You have to look mm. at the soils. You have to look at, you know, your topos and aerials and determine your ground disturbance and, and what went on before, at least what you can determine from those maps. You do everything that you can to set yourself up. Before you even go into the field, you have to do all these things. And that's why, you know, I do hear people, they're like, well, on especially when people are moving from company to company, this company, I didn't have to dig that far down. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's that company. Oh, I was only digging this or that company. I had to dig, you know, 180 centimeters, whatever. And there's a reason for that. If, yeah. if 
the person who's putting together the research design knows what they're doing. You can work in one, you know, one project site. You can work in one that's like only a hundred feet down, you know, 300 feet down the road. And you have a complete different work plan because yeah. of the yeah. characteristics of that site. And so yeah. that's why, you know, it's important. And that also goes into your different your different phases and why you can move fluidly between phase one and phase two, but on other projects you can't. Hmm. Yeah. The other thing too, that is an important consideration is your people because, and I think Heather can tell us a lot more about this, you know, any company like you're saying about the notice to proceed, but also the project location and the APE and the kind of resources that are there, your company is going to have specialists that, are good at certain things, right? There's going to be field techs who are, you know, hardcore and they can dig a lot of shovel probes, but their paperwork is always yes <laughs> questionable, right? Yes. Whereas <laughs> someone else who maybe doesn't dig as many holes, they are very meticulous and detail oriented and never make a mistake on that right. kind of stuff. There's also super remote locations. And then there's locations where we can seriously rent a minivan and just everybody hops out and we don't even really need any tools. And we just stand there and watch them, you know, do a bunch of uh, backhoe trenches, right? We don't need shovels. We don't need screens. We're just out there. So it matters on the kind of people that you're going to send out there and their availability because they're yes. also employed on other projects. And so sometimes you kind of hope that records check doesn't come back for another 10 days because <laughs> right. the three key That's people that you want yeah. to be on this project that are the seriously the difference between this thing coming in on budget or not really happening at all are out on another project and if you pull them from that one then there might be questions about you know whether that one's going to come in so the kind of project it matters on which of your employees or who you're going to recruit to work on those projects and the the hiring manager that's another major thing that goes into their calculations on each project and every single survey that's a great point you're just reminding me, like, we, we have a guy who's just super, I mean, he's amazing at at dig, digging accurately and very quickly, but mm. he's terrible at, at his paperwork. And so there are times where it actually makes sense for us to to put somebody with him that documents everything on the iPad of what he's doing. And he loves to dig, but he hates to screen. So they screen and they document. So you put people in, in pairs of two. And sometimes sometimes yeah. that's best. And there's so many different – that's why I, I get frustrated sometimes when people try to compare. You know, yeah. why was this done? And, and assume that the person with the MA, right, that's always this, you know – concept the person with the ma doesn't know what they're doing no there's sometimes they don't sometimes they don't know what they're doing but sometimes no. their decisions are based on all these other different yeah. you know issues that, thinking bigger that need to yeah. come to play yeah right yeah yeah, yeah the, talking about your your guy who's uh who's accurate and uh and quick heather I, I mean, the thing I noticed when I really started doing shovel testing in the Southeast, which I get, tell you what, anything that will get you to move to the West is consistent shovel testing in the Southeast because, mm -hmm. you know, not, yes. not only <laughs> just the Southeast, I would, <laughs> you know, I'm from Idaho. So just the Southeast yeah. is already enough Listen, for you to be like, why are we here? I hear you. 
Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. But it was it was something there, there were some areas down on the coastal plain and in, in the Carolinas and Georgia where, you know, it's just sand. It's one strat. There's no soil change. There might be one soil change or something like that. And you're you're not digging 10 centimeter levels in your shovel test. There are some places where you do absolutely do that. But there's a lot of places where you dig stratigraphically. And down in the coastal plain was one of those places. And like I said, a lot of times your shovel test is going down as deep as the shovel will reach or the water table. And that's 80 centimeters to a meter. And usually yeah. it's less than that for the water table starts seeping in. And then you're, you're basically done. I mean, there could be more cultural stuff, but you just can't get any deeper because it's not possible with a shovel. It. Yeah, you can't do it. But the point is, I mean, sometimes I was on project where I would do, you know, 100 to 150 shovel tests in a day. Right. And that is just pulling the entire <laughs> the entire block of the shovel test into the screen, lifting it up. You've got a pile of pottery there or you've got nothing. You put that in a bag, you you tie it all up and then you throw the dirt back wow. in the hole and you move to the oh. next one. And it was about five, six minutes between shovel tests when you're really moving. So to Heather's That's comment, insane. I know to yeah. Heather's comment, you usually have three different attributes for people who can do that. And that's usually speed, accuracy and stamina. Right. Like how. Yeah, how yes, fast are so, they at the shovel test? Yeah. How accurate is their paperwork and their holes, their their shovel test to begin with? And then can they keep that going all day and for the entire session? I would say you could usually pick two of those and you're lucky you're lucky if you get all mm-hmm. three. Hang on to that person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give them more That's money. That's why I love being flexible in how you make up a team for a project. You cannot mm-hmm. just wait for that perfect person. You have to work with what with who you have. All right, hey everybody, this is Chris just jumping back in. We had a internet failure and some weird things happened. So we had sort of an abrupt end to our conversation, but we're going to bring this back in <laughs> because one thing we realized, Andrew was trying to be consistent here and he read the definition out of his little textbook there for phase one and phase two. And now he's going to read us phase three so we can all know what that means. Finally. All right, here we go. Yes, Mr. Consistency <laughs> himself, Andrew Kinkella, <laughs> reading. So, uh, What is a a phase three? So I like this here. According to the textbook, phase three data recovery commences when avoidance is not reasonably possible and when excavation or comparable archaeological investigation is deemed the most appropriate way to mitigate or offset the adverse effects. So phase three attempts the recovery, analysis, and dissemination of the anthropological information stored within the threatened part of the site matrix. The idea is to make the continued existence of the portion of the threatened site redundant. And of course, you Mm. know, there's some controversy over that, but it's understandable in terms of the law. If successful, the site's information potential is captured by the process and contained in the archaeological assemblage, field records, laboratory analysis records, and reports. So there you go. That's what you're supposed to do in a phase three. All right, then. So basically dig it all up and put it in a lab. Yep. Yeah. I never really (laughs) understood the redundancy part, but I mean, I, I can see it. As someone who has built a career on counting stuff like window glass and nails, that you could yeah. be like, oh my gosh, we are definitely in redundancy. You know, how many thousands <laughs> of rusty nails do we really yeah. need to know about? Well, oh, I think man. that's. I did one where there was wire. Yeah, we oh, had to great. save the yeah. wire. Kibbles of wire. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I think oh, yeah. one thing to remember with uh, data recovery is not always necessary. You have a resource, you look around and you know, let's say we know what the resource is. And the idea is, is that you're trying to capture information that would be helpful in a more comprehensive 
you know, complex understanding of that period of time. So if that's not going to be helped with your data recovery, sometimes there's an argument that a data recovery is not necessary because you Mm -hmm. already have that information. And so, you know, I don't think that's one thing that people need to remember is just because you have a resource and it's not avoided, uh, you're not able to avoid it. Now, this doesn't happen very often, but the reason I think it's important, even though it doesn't happen very often, the reason I think it's important is that people have to understand the spirit behind why we do data recovery. We're not just doing data recovery to get the information about that site specifically. If there's any evidence whatsoever that this site might be unique to other sites in the area from the same period from and all the traits are the same, you know, it, you have to have a reason why you're excavating this site. And why is that important? That's important because there's, you know, sometimes the the impact isn't really like you're grading the whole thing. Sometimes it's just limited impact. Mm-hmm, so you have yeah. to decide, you know, what what really does need to be, you know, what really does need to be excavated. And so yeah. there's so many thoughts that go into that. It's not just, oh, we have a site. Now we have to data data recovery the entire site. And I, I yeah. think a lot of people understand that, but I think people on, you know, if, especially if you're new to archaeology or CRM, you you just think that it's a blanket data recovery across an entire site when that's not yeah. the case. There's so many other decision makers, decision. Yeah. yeah. I love that whole idea, Heather, of like the site significance and the spirit of the law. Like that's what mm-hmm. it's really all about underneath all of it. And I think we've all been yeah. on projects from time to time where they just long forgot that and are just sort of doing some weird thing by right. rote, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah. What Especially a, what a historic point. sites. Like historic sites, you know everything. Sometimes, not always, but you you know know everything. everything. You don't know everything. (laughs) Well, okay, you never know everything. You're right. But do you know enough? Is what you're going to excavate? And listen, I I know some people may argue this, but there is, you do have a responsibility to not burden a client with with an excavation that's going to... add nothing to the archaeological record, yeah. really. No. Uh, you don't. And so and these data recoveries are expensive. <laughs> They're expensive. Wait, this, this. this is a two-way street? I can't just do whatever I want? Yeah. <sighs> so, and, and then the, the other thing is, is that, you know, we're seeing more and more, at least here in California, where the tribes are saying, okay, listen, I want to know, what is it? What, really, what is going to be the impact on this site? And what you're doing here, I'd, I'd rather you just, you know, be very limited in your data recovery efforts. And let's only really, I, I think the attitude towards data recovery has changed. Yeah. Especially depending on what the impact's going to be. Right. Chris, what's up? Okay. So I, I think I'll just close out this segment with a, with a little comment that re- brings it full circle back to what something Bill was mentioning in segment one. And that is, you know, like, like Heather's saying too, what's the reason for the data recovery? Well, you know, well, the reason for even going there to begin with is preservation, right? I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole thing we're trying to do here is preservation. So what's the best way to preserve a site? Is it to avoid it? Is it to dig it all up because it's, they're going to go deep enough that they're going to do, they're going to destroy it. Or is it to, you know, and and Native Americans, I know would prefer this in most cases, is it to just cap the site off if it's not going to be impacted? Like Bill was saying, are you not going to the levels of the, of the cultural significance? Are you not hitting those levels with your disturbance? Then just cap it off 
stuff. No one's ever right. going to see it again, probably. But that's fine. That's usually the yeah. way people prefer it. You know? Sometimes that's not, you know, that's not feasible, right? The, sure, sure. Of course. Yeah. The archaeological cap is considered is considered avoidance, at least yeah. in some area, yeah. right? That's avoidance. So, but if it's not, if that's not feasible, then that's where the data recovery, the actual exactly. excavation comes in. Totally. Now, I would say in, in modern buildings these days, it's really hard to, to sell that because these things go down so deep because they're big, they're heavy. Yeah. They need big footings and foundations. The chances right? of you, you know, staying above any sort of cultural layer is probably pretty slim, <laughs> but it's still a possibility, yeah. I guess. Yeah. You know, but, it, but in a case where you're only building a Walmart, that's going to have, you know, a 200,000 square foot footprint, but the rest is going to be parking lot. Perhaps right. we only excavate right where they're going to put in the Walmart and all Egg. its utility lines. Yeah. Right. I actually, that was one thing that I think is important to really quickly define what does feasible mean? Because people are going to say, well, you, everything's feasible. Everything's av- avoidable, right? Just don't do it. Well, that's not the case. People don't realize that there's so many other factors that come into play when it comes to development. So when we're doing development, especially with the housing crisis we have right now, if yeah. you have a piece of property, you have to have a certain amount of, you know, you have to have a certain amount of, you know, housing units, right, within your your plot in order to you know, get a grant or in order to meet a certain regulation. And then that leads to, you know, sometimes you have limitations, you can only have a building a certain height, and then you have, you know, the limitations as far as our requirements when it comes to parking and having to have a certain amount of parking. So it is absolutely uh, possible to have a, you know, a situation where you cannot avoid a resource. And so yeah. Now, obviously, you can be you – no, know, also, you have things for – you have to have infrastructure. You have to have utility trenches. All yeah. these things are, are are factors that come into play. So, sometimes I think people are like, it's hard to understand. How come you can't avoid it? How come that's not feasible? That doesn't make sense. Of course, it's avoidable. Just yeah. don't do it. <laughs> well, it doesn't always work that way. But obviously, you know, putting something uh, – a parking lot in an area where a resource is, is always a very good option unless that resource is in an area where you have no choice. Yeah. Heather, I support all, everything you're saying in all construction just as long as it's not in my backyard. Okay? I totally support <laughs> okay. it though. Yeah. I'm totally Thanks for you. being transparent there, I'm Andrew. right there. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, the only thing, the other thing that's not uh, uh, avoidable is the end of this podcast. So let's uh, <laughs> take this to no uh, take this to next- try. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> let's take this to next time. In the meantime, help us out by going over to arcpodnet.com forward slash members. Check out our membership site. And with that, we will see you guys next time. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.arcpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks, everyone, for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. See you later. Thanks for listening. See you guys next time.
This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.